This week's John Tapp Racing Podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. When Kevin Thompson walked out of the broadcast box at Newcastle Trots the day after the 2015 Melbourne Cup, he had no idea he'd called his last race. Kev was booked into hospital the following day for quadruple bypass surgery, but he expected a quick recovery and an early return to work. About a month later, he suffered a stroke, which left him with impaired vision to his left-hand side. After six months, the condition hadn't improved and he was forced into a very premature retirement. Kevin Thompson could call a race today, but he's unable to drive a car and he simply can't get to the race meetings he would have been required to cover. Kevin's online to talk to me now. Kev, that situation has taken frustration to a whole new level. Yeah, well, uh, that's right, John. Uh, I... I didn't know, as you said, I didn't know what was what was going to happen. But as it turned out, it turned out to be my last race meeting, uh, and I did go like probably six months more on long service leave, mm. and not long service, but sick leave, mm. uh, in the hope that I would come good. So I never really realised it was my last one for another six months later. And mm. Sky Channel was pretty good; they uh, kept me on sick leave, and hopefully I was going to come back. But uh, got to the stage where uh, it was, I was never going to be able to get back and do what I was doing. So, um, as you said, the calling wouldn't have been a problem, but there's a lot more to it than just that. Turning up. Kev, well, you've you... got... Sorry? Yeah, well, you've, you've got to... You've got to uh, your car is very important to you. You know, it's, uh, it's the thing that gets you to race meetings all over the place. Um, and, you know, sometimes I was going to Bathurst or Canberra or Newcastle... And, and, you know, they're two and a half, three-hour drives. You're getting home at one in the morning. Mm. And you've got to have a reliable car. You've got to be able to drive. You've got to have your wits about you. Mm. And if you can't, you know, you can't rely on somebody to take you to all those places. You have all sorts of things go wrong at race meetings. There's delays and there's rain and they get called off or you have to leave late. And yep. So I couldn't do it. No, you know. logistically impossible. Yeah. You must have been through a, a very difficult period of adjustment over the last two and a half years. Well, yes. Um, yeah, there's been nothing wrong with my health. It's um, it's fine. It's, uh, what happened was I had that uh, bypass, but um, I, I've had t- type one diabetes since I was 21, so so mm. I've been taking needles all my life. So there's a lot of checking in with doctors all the time. You're always going back for something. One of those things was a cardiologist, and he sent me uh, to do an angiogram, and then he said, look, you, you, you're going to have to have a bypass. Mm. Well, uh, then he went through it all and all the, all the arteries and that, and he said, well, you're going to have to have a quadruple bypass. Mm. Well, um, from what I'd heard, pe- people had told me, well, they, they're so good at it now. You're up and running again in a few weeks. Mm. So I had every intention of coming back to work. But after a few weeks, I was well enough, but, then a stroke hit me. I, I got a, a blood clot come up into my brain, mm. and that 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 I think was a result of that that surgery because it's a big surgery, mm. and um, it got through into a spot in my brain that affected your eyesight. Yeah. Um, and well, I just had a sort of dizzy feeling at, at night one day. I went to the mm. doctors the next day, and she said straight away, oh, "You've had a stroke." So I went in the hospital and for a few days, and, and it come good, uh, but the eyesight didn't, and um, 
it left me with a peripheral vision. Mm. So on the one on the left side, so you turn your head, you got no trouble seeing everything. But if, if it, but the the thing with the RTA was the RMS. They said if a little kid jumped off a curb out in front of you in the car, yeah. you wouldn't see him till he was right in front of you. Mm, that's so, true. And they're very strict, so I couldn't do it. Well, it not only affected the, the work, it affected me everything. You know, I can't mm. drive anywhere. I mm. can't go and get to, to the shopping, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my wife, Jan's got to drive, drive us everywhere. And uh, I'll duck around the streets to the to the local, to the paper shop and the macas or something, but mm. I wouldn't take it any further because you can't afford to take the risk. Kev, that career of yours started at about age ten. Your dad took you to Randwick one day, and you saw a horse called Flotsam win the Summer Cup. I can remember Flotsam just to ch- confirm this. Did he have white with a dark blue sash and a dark blue cap? <laughs> Well, I'm not sure. I know Ethel Mully rode him, yeah. but uh, no, I couldn't tell you what the colours were at that stage. I was about 11. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was my introduction to racing at the track, but I was always, always interested in any way because my father, who died when I was only 11, mm. uh, had the radio on all the time listening to the great callers, call the races of the day, like Ken Howden, Vince Gary and Bert Bryant. So mm. I was, he was a little punter. And I just got interested in, in listening to the races and then we went out to the races and from there on I just uh, wanted to be a race caller mm. and uh, I was really doing it as a, as a kid, you know. Yep. Dad also took you to Harold Park and you were instantly besotted with harness racing. Well, yes, I was still highly interested in, in, in the galloping racing as well, both, and the greyhounds for that matter at the time, mm. but it was the, the, the harness racing in Harold Park which really got me because it was night time and the lights were on and there was big crowds there and great horses, great trainers and drivers, mm. and uh, that really got me going. I think the first time I went was a, the six, uh, in 65, uh, and in 66, the end of the Minion Championships was there, held there, which Chamfer Star won. But mm. uh, I went out to one of the heat nights, and the crowd was busting the mm. Harold Park at the seams, and just so exciting, John, in those days. You know, like mm. people that go to the, go now, if someone went to Manangle, it's 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 hard to get excited because you're used to sitting in your lounge room watching the races. But in those days, it wasn't any of that, and you just had to go out to the track and. It was, people everywhere and Mm. so exciting well kev with that desire to be a race caller bubbling away under the surface you found it hard to focus on your early jobs you were a sales assistant with walton's limited Uh, you were a clerk with the the p&o cruise lines and you worked also for the department of main roads and you were bored to tears that's right i'd left uh, in the end of the year in November, I think I was 18, and those three jobs were all in three months. I left one, went to another, <laughs> went to yeah. another. I was only there a month or so at each one. And even the third one, which was at the main roads, as I said, uh, I'd only had, I hadn't even started when I applied for another job. Mm. And uh, that was like on the Monday, and so that, I virtually started there, and a couple of weeks later, I left again. So, it was, <laughs> but that job became the Sydney Turf Club, and that just changed changed everything for me because I was I had to get into racing somehow. And when that came up, well, I, I struck the lottery. 
right? Well, the Sydney Turf Club uh, went a long way to paving the path for your future. What were your duties with the STC in the early days? Well, uh, now they've joined up with the, with the AJC and the Australian Turf Club now, but in those days the STC was separate identity and the Australian Jockey Club still did all of the... Um, yeah, the you know the breeding and the, and the stud registries and and all of that sort of thing and supplied all the stewards even for the STC meetings and all of that. So we had our own own stuff to look after, and I worked in the racing office doing the race books um, and doing putting them all together for the race day and and going through all the trainers, the breedings and the colours of all the horses that were in the, engaged for the next meeting and mm. we'd have to send little cards off to the printers to get them printed and they'd come back the next mm. afternoon all ready to, to proofread mm. and that's how we got the race books and all that stuff out and then on the race day I'd go to the uh, work at the race meetings as a, a judge's assistant uh, clocking mm. or assistant judge and and in those days we had the job also of doing the Clark scale. So after the race, you'd you'd come out of the box and bolt down the stairs to the Clark scales and weigh the jockeys out for the next race. The stewards would weigh them in after the race, but you'd have to weigh them out for the next race. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a busy day on race day as well, you know. So but, but I got to you know I was working with uh, Peter Cook and Malcolm Johnston and Ronnie Quinton and. Mm. and Nick Dittman and Roy Higgins had come up from Melbourne and all these big names and I'm there yeah. as a kid sort of working on the Clark scale. So yeah, you'd be overall great. Yeah, yeah, it was all great. But but I wanted to be a race caller and all the time I was sort of looking around to see what would come up and after about five years at the Sydney Turf Club, which was great, well, I left and concentrated on race calling. Well, you got to know Ray Conroy during that period with the Sydney Turf Club. Ray was the doyen of Sydney's harness and uh, greyhound callers and a man who later on proved a, a wonderful help to you. Yeah, well, he helped a lot of race callers. I think in those days, I think you'll find most blokes that went into calling got some help around from Ray. He was just so generous and, and uh, friendly to everybody. And he was so good, and he sent me off to Jim Carners, and I started to call it Jim Carners on a Sunday, which, which they don't have now. They have trials at the harness racing or midweek trials or something like that. But on those days, Jim Carners on a Sunday were a big, big deal. They, they'd have twenty races, and uh, it was a great grounding to call because the horses would just come onto the track mm. from the stables every ten minutes. There'd be a race, and you, all you'd have was a name and the numbers. You didn't have any colours or anything, but until um, they come out there and you'd have to quickly learn them all and then go to the next race and they'd be coming onto the track for the next race and the blokes would be mm. gearing up the horses for the one after that. It'd be yeah, going one after it. the other. You know, it was so busy, but it was a great founding to call. You had to be quick. Kev, your big break came in 1976. Ray Conroy went on an overseas holiday. 2KY needed a greyhound caller during his absence. And your first on-air stint was at the Penrith Dogs in October 76, and there was a bizarre twist to that night. Well, there was, because um, the meeting got washed out on the Saturday. That was, here I am all geared up to call my first ever race on radio at the Dogs. And a bloody rain washed them out. (laughs) How many times does a dog get washed out? Like, never. Yeah. and they got washed out and got postponed to the Thursday. And as it happened, Ken Howard, 
who was my boyhood idol and the bloke that I listened to and mm. was in awe of, died on that morning. It was a Thursday, and he died in, and on that morning that I was to kick off my career. Mm. So it was very bizarre that that should happen. But not only was that bizarre, then they had a dead heat. How many times did they have a dead heat at the dogs? <laughs> <laughs> and here's me, as nervous as all hell, yeah. and I get a bloody dead heat. <laughs> <laughs> a million to one. A million to one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I thought, well, from, it's got to be easy from here on. So, <laughs> <laughs> so from there on, I did do quite a few. Well, Ray was, as you say, he, he, was, he went to America for a month, and they said needed someone to call the dogs on the Saturday night at Penrith. Yeah. So that's where I, I started off. But I, I, I did the Greyhounds for quite a few years on and off for Paul Ambrosoli, mm. but uh, I was never really all that keen on it. They, they, yeah. they send you batty. They're, they're too fast and, they, mm. you, you know, they're going. You're just too much to see in a race. And, and I put take my hat off to the Greyhound calls and Paul was a genius. For over 150 years, Inglis has been the market leader in the field of thoroughbred auctions. The tradition continued in 2018 with Inglis selling the most yearlings at the highest average, median and clearance rate than any other player in the market. On the racetrack, Inglis was again number one for Group 1 wins and winners around Australia for the 2017-18 season and was the only auction house to sell a 2018 Group 1 winning two-year-old. Four of them, in fact, written by Esther Jarb, Seabrook and the Autumn Sun. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. 1979, you became course commentator for the Illawarra Turf Club Saturday meetings at Kembla Grange. Later on, you took over their midweek meetings as well. You were at Kembla for a long time. Yeah, well, um, I had the time to do them because they were on a th- they started up on Saturday afternoons and, and you know, um, the major callers, Ian Craig and, and company, were, were calling in town. So I got to get the job to do them. Uh, at first, they just started doing non-tap meetings, and they were only doing like a daily double or four races on the TAB. So they, they weren't even going on radio for a while. They were just on course, and nobody wanted to do them much because the fields were huge in those days. Mm. Uh, like quite often now, I read, look at the fields at Kemble and have a little chuckle, and there's eight or ten runners in them every race. And yeah. uh, in those days, there wasn't the proliferation of meetings that there is now, and um, uh, they had huge fields. It was a big track, big, wide, spacious track, and they'd have 16, 18 runners in every race, and it was a real hard job doing it. And I think I, I got it by default. I think no one put their hand up, but but I stayed on for about 20 years, and uh, right through from 79 till uh, about the year 2000, and, and Matthew Hill actually then took over mm. from me at, at Kembla, uh, and look where he is now. He's calling Melbourne Cups. Mm. Kev, Kembla's big two-year-old race, which was originally called the Brambles Classic, has attracted some terrific horses over the years. What are your memories of some of those real top horses that got to the Brambles? Well, uh, funnily enough, uh, it was always a lead-up to the Golden Slipper, and no horse actually went on to win the Golden Slipper from the lead-up for the Brambles. It was was held about 10 or 12 days before the Slipper. Mm. Um, But um, Royal Troubadour 
was one that really bolted in the brambles and he went to the slipper and ran a place and been there was another one who won a golden won the brambles and ran a place in the golden slipper mm. and there were so many good horses came through but but the one i do remember uh was about 1986 mm. uh i just can't think of the horse that won it mm. but two of the beaten brigade were bone crusher and handy proverb yeah like yeah uh, later fought out a derby finish from, didn't they yeah, well, Bone yeah. Crusher came over from New Zealand for uh, the two-year-old race, and he wasn't really uh, at his top at that time. But uh, he went around handy. Probably was too different, too too short for him, like you said. They were Derby horses later on. Mm. But uh, the race was renowned for the horses that actually came through the race uh, over the years. You know, there were so many good horses that that seemed to come through that race and then went on to be really good horses. So I, I did get the chance to. Uh, to always enjoy that that race, but it was, you know, Kemble was a great uh, experience. I enjoyed going there, and um, Bert Lilly came on the committee later on, and we, you know, and Keith Nolan ran the joint, and it was mm. was was good to get down there every every uh, every set, second Saturday, I think, at that stage, and yeah, during yeah. the week as well. Between 1980 and 1985, the broadcasting situation at Harold Park became very complex. 2KY, as it was known then, had its own caller with a different commentator on course. Now, where did you fit in there? Well, it came about um, the, the committee decided that they wanted to have a separate caller from the, the uh, radio and, and on course doing their own job because the radio had a busy job and was also being shown on the ABC Live at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was also uh, uh, Macquarie Network was still there, and and TUE, and they were all all up there, and they just wanted a separate bloke just to keep his mind on the job to do the course. So I got to do that, and uh, then uh, uh, Ray Connolly and I used to share share it for a while, but then Ian Craig gave the trots away, and Ray had to call the trots for Harold Park for two KY. So then that that mean, mean, meant that they wanted their own on-course call separate. So I I came in and did the on-course job, and actually the first, but the first week, the second week, I, I got to call a Miracle Mile. So it was was quite good to get onto the on-course. But then later on, when Ray retired and I had to go on to do just radio, it then became Ray Hadley's job, and Ray Hadley came on and did the on-course only until Sky Channel came along. So there was a bit of uh, moving about at the chairs at Harold Park there for a while. But along the way, I was there every week, whether it be on course, mm. the, the radio, or later Sky Channel, I was there right through. Yeah, well, you called two meetings a week for close to 30 years. And at a rough count, I think you told me once, you called about 25,000 races on the famous old track. Yeah, well, that'd be about right when you add it up, and then probably you know, throw in all the other meetings I did. I'd probably finish up doing, you know, all the other tracks. I've done probably seventy thousand calls over the career. Mm. But Harold Park was was always twice a week, yeah. all that time, and uh, it yeah, it became um, became such such a great great night there, and you know we had we had a lot of fun, particularly with the other callers there. Hadley was always funny to work with. David Morrow was there and, and, and you know, it was was really good. A huge and nostalgic crowd turned out for the last meeting at Harold Park 
in December 2010. It'll soon be eight years. They were still there for the last race, which was getting close to 11 o'clock at night. Everybody was emotional. None more than you, Kev, as you prepared to call that final race at the Harold Park yeah. Paceway. Well, I, I called 29 Miracle Miles in a row uh, there in all that time calling. All those great races, all those big crowds. One year there was uh, 30,000 there, I think, uh, in, in one, one early year, and, and the huge crowds. But it was nothing like that last night. Even though there wasn't 30,000, it was probably about 17, 18, I'm not sure. Mm. But, but it still gave me more of a buzz than, than all of those Miracle Miles because there was people there that you hadn't seen for years turned up the trots again came out to say goodbye to the place and um it was just a, as you said a very nostalgic night and uh, uh i had the job of calling the last race but it was uh, out of the ordinary a bit because it was a two-mile race and it was 14 runners so they're going four and a bit laps mm. and uh it just seemed to go on and on and on and i'm trying to get through it and thinking well this is it and you're getting a bit sort of emotional about it all and everybody's tuned into it, and the crowd was huge, off course as well on Sky Channel. And mm. Yeah, got through it, but it was a tough one to call. Um, but, uh, yeah, very nostalgic night, and, and you know, I think everyone enjoyed that night. Well, you did it well because professionalism ruled the roost all the way through it. Your call was very good and very accurate and very colourful, even though you were bursting with emotion underneath. Now, Kev, of all those miracle miles... The 1983 version provided you with your most indelible memory and one of your favourite calls. What a race it was. Yeah, hard to forget that one, John, because uh, when you get two champions fighting out a, a finish in a big race like that, well, it's, it really gets you going. And uh, that year, Gamalite and Popular Arm clashed. Uh, Gamalite had won the previous two Inter-Dominions and Popular Arm was the superstar of the time, and Gamalite was a real tough, grinding horse. He'd get up outside the leaders in, in his races and just hammer away at them and, and then win his races that way, whereas Popular Arm was a high-speed horse. He'd either lead and sprint along or come around them and, and, mow them and run straight past them. But that race turned out to be the exact opposite. Gamalite actually held out Popular Arm for the lead and posted him outside of him, which was a... A complete reverse of, of what everyone expected. Mm. But Popular Arm, the champion that he was, he ran him down stride by stride up the straight, and it was just it, it was just a mighty finish between two great horses. So it's certainly one that stands out out of all of them. You fell in love with the standard bred horse uh, during your years as a harness racing caller, and it was no surprise later in life when you decided to take out a trainer's licence. And I remember your first winner very clearly little horse called Royal Gyro. Yeah, well, I got him from Brian Hancock. Johnny uh, was down the bottom of the list in Brian's team. He had such great horses at the time, uh, uh, things like Bundanoon and Jig Adios and, and um, so many so many top-line horses, the Inter-Dominion class horses. So he was the lesser class horse, and I got him for a few hundred dollars. That wasn't very much, I know, but mm. uh, I started to muck about with him. I won first up first uh, run with him at Nowra, we mm. don't have meetings now, mm. but uh, it was a non-tab meeting. So from there, he, he, he was good. He uh, won two at Harold Park. Um, well, I won six races with him, and um, I had a good, good deal of fun with him, but he was certainly, I think everybody needs a, 
a, a nice handy horse when they're starting out. You trained his half-brother later, a little horse called Persian Pat, and he won a stack of races. I think you won about 12 with him. Yeah, I finished up selling him to America uh, when he was probably in his prime. He'd won a, he'd won a, a Harold Park Friday night race, um, and then I, I sold him not long after. I suppose, uh, you know, he was get, starting to get on his mark a bit. But, uh, yeah, he was a half-brother to Royal Goro, and I got him off Brian as well uh, when he was a yearling, and... and uh, well, just after he was broken in, so uh, he was really good. Uh, we won eight races as, in one season with him at one stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won four in a row, and he was he was just uh, a little horse, but he was so honest. And uh, you know, it was a shame to have to, to sell him, but he was you know he was probably as I said on his mark, and um, he was he was probably the best one that I had. He done, he did win twelve races, but I never had anything. Um, with great uh, great ability, but I, you know I'd only have two or three. Three would be yeah. a big team. Three. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, two well, was as much as I could handle because I was still calling races everywhere, and I just didn't have the time. Top Aztec was a really smart two-year-old. You won a heat of the Bathurst Gold Crown. He ran fourth to Rocket Jason in the final. And that was the very first gold crown, Kevin, at Bathurst on the old track. It is now a highly prized event. Yes, well, he's, uh, he, he, he wasn't much good later on. He finished up becoming a trotter when I eventually sold him to Adelaide, and uh, he was a very handy trotter. But he was a beautiful pacer. He was never going to be a trotter for me, but he was a beautiful pacer from the word go. I got him at, got him at the yearling sales, got him going early. He... he um, one as you said a uh, two year old uh, race early on he won and then he won the first night of the Bathurst Gold Crown ever so uh, it was a big thing at the time when they introduced the, the series and it's gone from strength to strength since but uh, I drove him in, the, in that heat win and I drove him in the final and Rocket Jason won it driven by Cyril Caffin mm. after John Beebe got tipped out the night before at Harold Park and couldn't drive him. Mm. Um, so he won the race, the Rocket Jason with Cyril, and I was outside the leader, and he did, my horse did a good job to run fourth. Picked mm. up eight grand for running fourth. Oh, the prize, yeah. money, prize money was, <laughs> was all right, so we were happy. Now, Kev, you won a race at Bulleye one day on the little old Bulleye track on a 50-to-1 pop called Barney Vista. You trained him, you drove him in the race, and uh, I think it might have had a little dabble on the side too. Yes, <laughs> you know, I probably I probably won about forty five races all up uh, over over my career with the horses. But you know, like as I said, I had two two horses at a time, or maybe three. But he was he was the worst going horse I ever had in that time. And mm. uh, he won two races. He won another one at Penrith as well. But oh, he, he was a terrible knee knocker. He bashed, he bashed the hell out of his knee all the way. But he'd keep going. You know, some horses would just stop. They didn't want to go. They mm. were belting their knee. Uh, so, you know, we'd try everything on him, spreaders and the whole, whole damn thing. Mm. But he'd keep going. He, he was a tough bugger. Mm. And, he, and he finished up winning that day at 50 to 1. And, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> it was a nice win because... Uh, Dan, Dan and I had something on him, but not that we all expected him to win, but it always has something on, on them all, just in case something happened. And uh, it, was a, it was a big result. Uh, to get, even to get around Bulleye, he was doing a good job. So he, was, he was just a handful to drive and that because of the way he'd go, but he'd keep trying, you know, and that's what you yeah. want. Ill-gated, as we say. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> now, Kev, your dual role of commentator-trainer got you into awful strife at the Wyong Trots one day. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the, Wyong, the Wyong Trots, which are another place that doesn't race anymore, as most of them don't, but uh, the, the box, the, 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 the racetrack there, the galloping track, of course, is going a different way to the way the harness track went. So no. the box was separate, was down the other end. It was like at the furlong pole for the gallopers. It was down the other end, but the stables were were up past the winning post. So I had one in, and and, and as I often did in for a long time, I, I'd get one of the other callers to come and call the race for me, which they were all very good. Otherwise, I'd be taking too much time off to drive horses and muck about and not, not doing what I'm supposed to do. But uh, that day, Johnny McDermott came down to call the race for me. So he, he's, I went down to the stables, to get the horse ready so I could drive in. Mm. And then I looked up and they jumped in the next and I'm supposed to be down there calling that race. It was an earlier race mm. and and I'm nowhere to be seen. Well, I had to <laughs> run like a lunatic to the box and by the time I got there, I was puffing and blowing. I couldn't oh, breathe yeah. and I'm trying to talk and tell you what's going on and I run up the steps and call the race. I only got there for the last lap, but I couldn't even do that. Mm. It was just a terrible feeling when you're trying to spit it out and you can't breathe. And uh, it, well, it was a lesson I, re- I, I remembered for a long time, although uh, it did happen again, but not when I had a horse in. Another time I was down talking to somebody and had to run up to the box and miss the start again, but that might yeah. be many years later. But it keeps you, uh, keeps you watching what you're doing. You can't do two jobs at once. It's a physical no. impossibility. No. Now, Kev, your supreme thrills as a race caller came in the United States. You joined an Aussie support team some years ago when Tony Turnbull was the Australian representative in the World Drivers' Championship. You got to call some races at the Meadowlands, at Yonkers in New York, and you actually called the final of that World Championship in Canada. What a thrill. Well, it was. um, uh, Tony Turnbull didn't have much luck in that drivers' Uh, World Drivers Championship, but uh, our tour was good. Peter Valandis is now the El Supremo of the eight of uh, racing New South Wales. Uh, took the tour with me, and he was at Harold Park at the time. And we took a group of about thirty people. And we had a lot of fun. But uh, I uh, called one at Meadowlands and, and one at Yonkers, and the final of the World Driving Championship at uh, Greenwood Raceway in, in uh, Toronto, in in Canada. Mm. And I called called some of the heat races over there as well in Canada, so it, it was it was a big thing because there was no internet in those days. There was no racing on Sky Channel like we've got now. We've got American racing coming in here all the time, mm. and they'd never heard of our callers. And I created a bit of a stir for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> different. A, but Meadowlands, well, that's the pinnacle of our of the racing sport. Uh, in harness racing, so it was great that I wouldn't even remember what the horse was. I was just um, mm. um, just keen to do it, you know. Yes. And Yonkers the same. Yonkers was was um, you know it's an iconic place to go to, and at the time to do one there was good. The most unique harness racing carnival in America is the famous Little Brown Jug four day extravaganza, which is part of the Ohio State Fair. Crowds are huge, the atmosphere is electric. The regular race caller, Roger Houston, is quite a character. 
you got to call the Drivers' Invitational in which four Aussie rangemen competed. Yeah, well, that was a separate trip. Uh, Peter Volandis didn't come with us. This was about seven or eight years after that first trip. Mm. Uh, so I'd had those, those other couple of races under my belt um, in in the previous trip. But he rung, for, he rung the brown, little brown jug people and said that I was coming over and can I call a race there? Mm. And so that, that was great. So, uh, yeah, well, as it turned out, there was a driver's invitation race. Brian Hancock drove in it, uh, Stephen Dove, David Aiken and Ricky Thurlow, mm. those four Australians went up against four American drivers and John Campbell, the champion American driver, won the race naturally. Mm. But I got to call that one because it was an international race and uh, yeah, the crowd at the Little Brown Jug, well, you've been there. It's just, oh. it's just, just unbelievable. Well, I went a few years ago. There were 46,000 people there for the final the day I was there. Yeah, well, ours today was was a record that when we were there was fifty six thousand. Mm. But I didn't. My race that I called the, well, the international drivers race was actually on the on the Wednesday because they have a four day carnival, and the jugs on the Thursday and the jugettes on the Wednesday for the fillies. Yeah, and I called the international race on the Wednesday. There was still probably thirty or forty thousand there. It's just, and they're all around the track. They're all down the back straight as well, and the box is actually inside the track. So you actually call from inside the winning post. Mm. But Roger Houston's there all day screaming, oh, no, I have 20 races. And he's just screaming all day. Uh, he's got a huge, booming voice. Mm. And I got there and called the race. And you've got to watch when you're calling it that you don't trip over the wires of the microphone because you've got to turn it, swivel around to see them going down the back. When they come into the home state, you've got to turn around again. Mm. It's quite weird. But... Um, they went, uh, they went nuts over the call. I looked up the grid, <laughs> and they're all up there standing up, cheering. And you got a standing, standing ovation, a standing ovation. It, thought, news quick, quickly filtered through to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> this is like I just call a race a bull. I, I just call a race. I wasn't doing anything <laughs> out, outlandish. But as I said, they weren't used to our Aussie callers and. And, and afterwards, when I met a few people, you know, they'd say, oh, man, that was great. How'd you do that? Are you pulled yeah. them all right down to last? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the American callers stop after they call the third horse. There's no such thing as a run-on. No. No. They just say, where they go? Kev, Roger Houston, as you say, uh, screams his head off. Uh, massive uh, voice, very flamboyant style. It somehow suits the occasion, though. It's it, the day is very different. The day is very unique, and so is Roger Houston. Oh yeah, we 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 couldn't put up with him here for too long. But on a day like that, yes, he is. He did come to Australia and call the race here. Mm. Uh, um, I'm not sure he won at Harold Park. He might have done, but he definitely won at the. Um, into Dominion in Adelaide because they they invited him over, mm. and he he called one there, but he called it the same way. He just called the winner and the second and third and stopped. Well, everybody wanted to know the rest of the run on, but he he did call one here. But he's a legend over there, and he does he does make the day really because um, with his with his voice going like it does, uh, it it just excites everybody, and uh, he mm. gets them all wound up and. And we couldn't put up with him every day, but a day like that, he's perfect. You rarely get to the track these days, but there's not much you miss on Sky Racing. 
No, I um, I watch them all on not so much harness racing at night. I'm probably going to bed early, mm. <laughs> but yeah. um, but the races. Uh, Jan and I sit down. Uh, she loves the races, and I sit down and watch them all day on a Saturday. We we from all over the place and have have our bets and and uh, we stay interested in in that sort of thing. But um, no, no, very rarely get to a meeting these days. I'm sure you're aware that none of this would have been possible without the love, devotion and support of your wife, Jan. I've seen her at the trots, uh, you know, eight or ten years ago. You'd be up in the box calling and she'd be throwing harness on one of your horses and always calm, always unflappable and always professional. Yeah, great support. And uh, she was involved uh, early on uh, at the AJC many years ago when they brought in a, a group of 10 or 12 uh, jockey girls. They dress up in racing silks and little mini skirts and go around putting bets on for people in the members' enclosure. It was a huge thing at the time. It was, we received lots of publicity. It was write-ups in the Women's Weekly and, and all the ladies' magazines and they were doing photo shoots and all that sort of stuff. Um, she was one of the first picked for that and uh, there was quite a few other notable ladies there. I remember... Um, uh, Terry Page's first wife, the bookie, was one of the girls, and mm. uh, uh, Cole Nixon, who was the judge, his late wife was was there mm. in that setup, and you know she was really good at it. She went, did it for a long time, not so much as the jockey girls because they eased that out, but she was still a tote hostess for a long time, and uh, you know as I say, she likes the races, and many times that I, I do two two meetings in one day, I never do it now. But I'd often call races at Kembla mm. back up to a meeting at Bankstown or Harold Park or something in the night time. You mm. go from one to the other. Mm. Well, there was no hope of getting back to feed up horses and put rugs on and all that. Well, Jan would mm. do all that sort of thing for me. So, you know, I couldn't have done it without her. Well, Kev, quite often uh, at harness racing meetings in particular, somebody will ask me, how's Kevin Thompson? Have you seen him lately? And that's uh, the primary reason that I decided to find you, contact you, and invite you to be a guest on our podcast here on uh, the new website. Great to talk, great to reminisce. Congratulations on a magnificent career. You certainly left your mark on uh, the art of race broadcasting, and you certainly left your mark on the sport of harness racing. Well, thanks for ringing me, John. It's been great to be on. I had a look at your website, and it's, it's good to see us old-timers embrace, embrace the new technology. It's second nature to the kids these days, but things have changed, racing, uh, uh, how it's presented, and it's all different. But, but I've enjoyed every minute of what I've been through, and uh, uh, you know, I still still keep an eye on things. And um, It's been... Uh, you know, I wouldn't have missed any of it for, for quits. Great to talk, Kevin Thompson. Thanks for joining us. For over 150 years, Inglis has been the market leader in the field of thoroughbred auctions. The tradition continued in 2018 with Inglis selling the most yearlings at the highest average, median and clearance rate than any other player in the market. On the racetrack, Inglis was again number one for Group 1 wins and winners around Australia for the 2017-18 season and was the only auction house to sell a 2018 Group 1 winning two-year-old. Four of them, in fact, written by Esther Jarb, Seabrook 
and the autumn sun. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. <laughs>